The Brooklyn Vegan Show is a podcast about music brought to you by the music blog and online record store Brooklyn Vegan. Make sure to subscribe to hear all of our upcoming episodes featuring interviews with musicians and more, and find us 24-7 at brooklynvegan.com, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Hey, welcome to a very ska edition of the Brooklyn Vegan Show. I'm B the Editor Andrew Sacker, and today's episode is an interview with Aaron Carnes, author of the book In Defense of Ska and co-host of the In Defense of Ska podcast. Aaron just put up pre-orders for a new updated expanded edition of the book called the Ska Now More Than Ever edition on Clash Books, and he and his podcast co-host Adam Davis, who sings in the band Omnigon and used to be in the band Link 80, just launched a new season of their podcast. And they have upcoming episodes with members of Jawbreaker, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, Fishbone, Illuminati Hotties, Mr. Bungle, Safe Ferris, and more. You can pick up the new edition of Aaron's book at clashbooks.com, and you can listen to the new season of his podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, including wherever you might be listening to this one right now. Before we get to all the ska, just a quick heads up that listeners of this podcast can get 30% off their first year's membership at DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. In case you're unfamiliar, DistroKid is a service for musicians that allows you to easily upload your music to all major streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Music, and more. It allows you to do automatic revenue splits so collaborators and co-writers can get paid too. It provides you with an artist page that links to your music on all streaming services. It allows you to add lyrics, credits, liner notes, and more. And again, you can get 30% off your first year's membership by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash Brooklyn Vegan. We've also included the link in the description of this episode, and you can click directly from there. And now, here's my conversation with Aaron Carnes. Hey, Aaron, what's up? Welcome to the BV Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I'm excited to defend some ska. Oh, good. You've defended ska before, so, it's, you know. So yeah, in your first rodeo. First rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, so, you know, two of the big reasons you're here is you have the second edition of your book, In Defense of Ska, coming out, mm-hmm. as well as the new season of the In Defense of Ska podcast, which you have a new network for. I do, um, yeah. So congratulations on all that. I'm really excited Thanks. for... Yeah. Um. So I guess before we get into all the things we're going to get into, I want to flip the script on you for a second. You often uh, bring people on your podcast that are not in the ska world and you're like, tell me about your ska roots. So before we get into all the ska stuff, tell me about your non-ska roots. What's like a a style of music or a couple artists um, that we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if, if that didn't impact your life at some point? Um, let's see. Historically, that's, that, that's such a big question. Cause I listened to a lot of music, but historically before I got into ska, I went through a few other phases so we can discuss those. Um, I recall first initially, um, I grew up in a very Christian household. So there was a, a little bit of a delayed exploration of, um, non-Christian music cause it wasn't really allowed. So I kind of like you know, I kind of listened to a little bit of like a uh, classic, you know, 50s rock, you know, that was kind of okay. Um, and then I kind of like, I discovered like, and mostly, mostly secretly listening to alternative radio. When I was a teenager, the alternative radio 
was actually is pre Nirvana. So before Nirvana, like alternative radio was not like did not yield like mainstream hits at all. And so I discovered um, in the Bay Area, there was a San Francisco it was called Live 105. I discovered Live 105 and I would sit and listen to it in my room and I'd never heard of any of these bands before. But I think it's probably like going back, it's probably like The Cure, Midnight Oil, uh, Depeche Mode, R.E.M. But these were, you know, they weren't really uh, as big as we know them to be in the 90s. They were like underground bands. So I was really into that. Uh, really, really loved Depeche Mode a lot. Like I, um, I love Depeche Mode so much that me and a friend of mine, we would like make fake like radio shows and our guest was always Depeche Mode because <laughs> we would, <laughs> one of us would be the host, usually me. And then my guest, my friend would be the guest and he was usually, uh, like Martin Gore from Depeche Mode. We thought the funniest thing we, we had heard this interview with them. Uh, and, uh, it was like, why do you, why do you guys uh, just stand there on stage or something like that? And they're like, Martin Gore said like, we're keyboardists, we don't move. And we just thought that was the funniest thing ever. And we like recreated that interview like several times in, in various levels of absurdity. But, um, like I truly, truly loved and still love that band, particularly the violator and, um, what was it called? Music for the masses, the one before it. Yeah. Those two records I love. So, um, Scott came a little after that. I, I got, I started once I got into like alternative radio, alternative radio changed with like Nirvana. Like I said, that, that sort of, that sort of showed that there was like a, a crossover. Um, but I start I started getting really interested in that. There was like live music happening in, in, in clubs, like small venues. And so I was exploring that not really so much from going to the shows, initially because of my religious upbringing, but hearing about it from kids who were going and getting tapes from, you know, these bands. So I was getting into some of it was punk rock. Some of it, a lot of it was like the funk metal scene that was happening in the Bay area, but the funk metal scene involved bands like Primus. Primus weren't a mainstream band yet. Um, Mr. Bungle was part of that. Um, Fishbone, kind of too, even though they weren't, they were LA band, but they were sort of mentioned in that as well. So those bands I was getting really into, there was like other ones that I look back and maybe don't think as fondly of like Psychofuncopus or Limbomaniacs or whatever, but I was into all that. And it was kind of through that, that I started discovering because ska was like really closely associated with this funk metal scene in, in the, like the live realm at this point. So I, that's what led me to skink and pickle. So, so my answer is, Depeche Mode. And then I guess I'm going to say Primus. I was really, really into Primus, like way into Primus. Like I was a fanatic for Primus pre-Ska. Like I was, that might've been my favorite band at one point. That's awesome. I mean, I feel like Primus are like spiritually similar to Ska. Mm-hmm. We, um, but Mr. Bungle, that first Mr. Bungle record, I really loved. And I actually, we got to interview uh, Trevor Dunn uh, earlier this week which was great, but I was thinking, I thought about, I started thinking about this, like after I wrote my book, um, before I went to skank and pickle, saw skank and pickle play and discovered that there was this thing called ska. And I love this music ska. And I started going through that, that down that rabbit hole. I, um, I had already discovered fishbone and I had already discovered Mr. Bungle. And I had listened to both those bands, uh, considerably and, and, 
I didn't know that these specific sections of these specific songs were ska. I mean, it was just, they were just playing crazy music to me. Um, it was like after the fact that I was like, oh, okay, I see. And then it was interesting, you know, now I know so much about Fishbone and, and actually getting to talk to Trevor for Mr. Bungle and sort of listening to how all the stuff that they were into and, and how ska did play a pretty significant factor into the, the, the overall picture of what they were playing in the, in the era of that first record. Is, uh, is very interesting to me. But I think yeah. I, as a kid, I just loved like, I loved music that was all over the place and was like, you know, dynamic, I guess you could say. I guess that's how you would describe Fishbone and, and, and Mr. Bungle. It's very dynamic music. Totally. So like com- kind of coming up in, I guess, the new wave era, like did you, did you like did Two-Tone ever cross your path? Like I know like, I guess Madness would have kind of been in that realm also like or did that come after finding skink and pickle it came after finding skink and pickle i don't i don't know if i would have been aware of two-tone before then but it and i think it came pretty quick because i think i was really trying trying to learn a lot about ska and what's interesting to me um is two-tone i loved two-tone i love that specials record you know i was all in all in on it but it seems so old too i think like some of it probably was like the, the way the specials record cover looked like it, it probably looked old in 1979 because it's like that black and white photo and they're all dressed cool. And, you know, so I think like, like this is ancient, this is like the ancient stuff that happened before, but it really, if you think about it, it wasn't, you know, what it was like 12 years before it wasn't like an eon, you know, and I, and I, I saw, I saw the special beat play, you know, at that, when I was, probably just out of high school. Um, I saw the selector, I saw bad manners a few times. So I was, I was totally down with it. Those bands were all actively touring at that time because they had caught in wind that, um, the U S there was a, a, a viable ska market in the U S that didn't exist when they were like in their prime. So being in the Bay area, like, did you, were you at all like, around when Operation Ivy was around or did you kind of like find Scott after they'd broken up? I found Scott after they broke up because I was, uh, they broke up in like 1990. I don't, yeah, I probably, I don't know what exact year I was even allowed to start to listen to music, but I don't think I was allowed to go to shows in 1990. <laughs> so, you know, I discovered them after the fact. My first, my first show was, when I was 16 years old and I had been angling to go to live shows for a while. And I finally was allowed to go to a show when I was 16. So that would have been 91. Um, I got to see living color in San Jose, which is about a half hour from where I live. And that was like an older brother, a friend of mine and his older brother were going, the older brother was driving. There was like so many steps of like this being okay. And, uh, but you know, so then after that, and even, even for the next two years, well, even be- between the time I was 16 and 18, it was like a constant negotiation. Like, can I go to this club? No, you cannot go to that club. Arbitrary reasons. Yes, you can go to that one. <laughs> and, you know, I was seeing, I was seeing ska stuff and, and like other stuff too. But um, by the time I was 18, then I was like allowed to do whatever pretty much. And I was going to tons of shows, but yeah. Um, so you answer your question, Operation Ivy was well past the point where they had broken up before I discovered them. Got it. Yeah. And I, I relate to what you're saying. I, I had similar 
kind of parents like that. And I feel like I can count on two hands the amount of shows I saw before I had my own car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always find like the funniest thing about that first show to see Living Color is that the older brother of the friend, the one that enabled my mom to say that it was okay, was far less responsible than me or my friend. Mm-hmm. And I just remember... I think we like he drove down some one in some down some one way streets the wrong direction. I mean, it was like he was should not have been trusted with us. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so tell me, you know, like you again, you've got the second edition of Indefensive Ska, the book coming out. Before I get there, just in case anyone listening is unfamiliar, just give me a little bit of background on how you came to be the person with the book in defensive Scott, like at what, like can mm-hmm. you walk me a little bit through, you know, you find skank and pickle. And then what, 30 years later, you've got like this big Scott book. Yeah. I mean, I was super into Scott in the nineties. Um, I wouldn't say that I ever fell out of love with Scott. I mean, I, I, as I got into my twenties, I was getting into more and more like indie rock and all that kind of stuff that people in their twenties get into, which I, I still love a lot. Um, I think I was a little turned off towards ska going mainstream, you know, I kind of, a lot of those bands, I wasn't, I actually wasn't super familiar with them and I didn't know the, the major label albums very well. I do now, but at the time I, I wasn't very interested in, in ska being a mainstream genre. And then also on top of that, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming like a, a person in my twenties. I'm getting into all this indie rock and other stuff. Um, I become a music journalist in 2009. Um, and then at a certain point I'm, um, I don't know. I, I'm not really sure how it started exactly. Cause I mean, I'm, I look back and I'm, I'm like still, I'm still listening to ska. I'm still aware of ska. Ska is still something that I care about. Um, I think I've become aware that like this world of music journalism and ska just haven't really been overlapped very much. And that music journalists don't like ska. I think, I think that was what really hit me because I'm a music journalist at this point. I love reading music books. I love, I've read pitchfork reviews. I find them insightful. I'm not an anti pitchforker. Um, but I'm, you know, I, that's probably why I'm aware of like Scott's just really just like Scott doesn't exist as far as these, these people are concerned. And if it does exist, it is just a bad joke. So I think at some point I'm like going like, I, you know, I'd love to write something longer. I love music books. You know, Scott has been not really been given this kind of treatment before the way I'm thinking about it, the way like the kind of books that I've been trying to read. And so I think I would really like to write a book about ska, you know, fill in those gaps, especially the ska that I grew up with, you know, the, the stuff that happened in the U S the stuff, not just nineties, but you know, like there's whole, it's the whole period in the eighties that, that came in between two tone and like 90 ska, all that stuff. So I'm thinking about that. And so I'm, I start, I just, I decided I'm going to write a ska book, um, untitled ska book. And I'm, I start, this is around 2013. And I start interviewing people. I start collecting these interviews. I'm I'm trying to determine what it is that I'm trying to say or what I want to write about specifically. Um, A lot of my time spent 
initially was learning about the 80s US ska scene, which I had some pretty big gaps in. I I was aware of The Untouchables. I was aware of Bim Scala Bim. Of course, I knew Toasters. I didn't didn't know a lot of the other bands. I didn't know a lot of the history of these bands, though. And so I I did actually interview a lot of those bands in in the first period of time with the book, as well as like talking to some people that I um, knew already and was already familiar with. Like I think I interviewed uh, Eddie from Voodoo pretty early. Um, we didn't we weren't really friends, but you know, I had met him before and, you know, we had mutual friends. So he, it was pretty easy to kind of get to that level with him. And there's like years are going by where I'm just sort of talking about, I want to write the ska book and I'm, I'm interviewing a bunch of people and I'm kind of like coming up with different ideas about what I'm going to do and, and how, what I'm going to present. But I, I never really felt like I had focus until I, um, I got to this point in, I think like 2018 where I was aware of the fact that I this had been going on for several years. Uh, I'm pretty busy doing freelance articles too, so it's easy to like put aside this book that doesn't have a clear focus because I got so much work right now. And then um, I decided that I needed to sort of decide if I was going to do the Scott book or not, that I needed to sort of not be on the fence about it. So I I made a decision with myself to write a book proposal and to send it out and see if I can get someone on board with this project and that that would like determine whether or not I was going to like do this or not do this. And I, if I was going to do it, I was going to like put more energy into it. I wrote this book proposal um, through the process of writing the book proposal. I, I, I realized that a good angle would be to defend Ska because a consistent thing that came up part of what sparked my interest in writing about it to begin with was like, it's the amount that it's been dismissed in culture. Um, so I, I came up with in defense of ska through that process. And I wrote this proposal I even, and I even came up with the idea of making it be a disjointed collection of essays in, in the book proposal. Like, Oh, it doesn't have to be linear. I can jump around. I can tell some of my own stories. I can, tell some history. I can make some arguments. Like I, I came up with all that. It was a little jokier when I wrote the book proposal. I was kind of like, it was a little bit more like, I'm, I'm, this is going to be funny. That's kind of how I thought it. And then if you read the book proposal, which I highly recommend you don't, and I won't let you, it's, 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 it's kind of silly. It's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. but this, it was a reaction. It was a reaction to what I felt like, Oh, this is going to like get people's attention. And, um, I sent that proposal to clash books and they liked it. They, they wanted to do the book. So that, that gave me an immediate, like, okay, well I'm, I'm doing this book project and now I have to like restructure my life so that I can write this book. And I kind of followed that basic outline, but as, as I did it more and more, I was like, you know, I was refining the tone, I guess you could say. And I think the tone did shift a bit as I was, as I was going through the process. Um, Funny backstory about Clash is the reason I even went to Clash is because I have a friend named Jeff Burke who is, um, at the time, he had been working with um, a horror publish publishing company called Eraserhead Press. He was running their um, extreme horror division. I think it was called Deadite. Uh, he's not with them anymore, but at the time he was with them, 
And uh, I, I, for a while, I'd, I'd been interested in sort of that weird, not not the horror end of it, but like bizarro fiction was something I was kind of interested in. So I was aware of these publications, and I had submitted fiction stories, and but never been published with with them. Um, so, but we were Facebook friends, and he would talk about ska a lot, and he was like the only person that I knew of that was in the literary world and like ska. So I was. I asked him. I said, "Do you know?" I knew that Dead Eye obviously wasn't going to publish a ska book because it was just extreme horror. But I said, "Do you know anybody in the world that would be interested in a ska book?" And he said, "Oh, yeah, Clash. Check out Clash." I was like, "Okay." And then I, I submitted it, and then I got accepted. And then after I got accepted, I started like going like, "Who who is Clash?" Like, and I'm looking at their books. They're all over the place. They don't really have a, like very much nonfiction. And I see that there's like Kristoff from Clash is posting about how much he can't stand ska and him and Jeff are going back and forth. And then I learned that him and Jeff have this whole, at the time, like, um, ongoing joke where Christoph loves new metal or loves rock, you know, and, and Jeff hates it and Jeff loves ska, but Christoph hates it. And they just kind of tease each other back and forth. And so my ska book, I think, I don't think it was a joke necessarily, but I think he recognized that ska that Christoph was had a weird fascination with ska. Not a, I love ska uh, more like I'm really curious about why people care about this music because I don't get this music at all. And that's why he was interested in my book. Long story yeah, no, short. That's, that's awesome <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, I mean like it's, I mean, especially with the title, it's like off the bat, you're sort of saying like, this book is not just for people who love Scott because like it, like you can just tell from the title. I think that it's like, this might be a really interesting read if you hate Scott, because I'm in a way I'm almost talking more to you because I don't, you don't need to defend it to people who love Scott. Yeah. I kind of thought that way. So, you know, what's interesting is that there's, um, you know, if you, if you were to break down the readers, I guess you can say into different categories, there's obviously like ska fanatics who are, um, know everything about ska and have been going to ska shows and are still going to ska shows. That's one category. And like, definitely some of those people bought my book and some of them had like issues with it and some, you know, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and, but I think that's part of their, like, I love this thing so much. I have like a very specific take on it. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's people who actively hate ska. I don't know how many of those actually bought people bought my book, but there, there's the third category. And I think actually the ended up being the most significant category. And I wasn't quite thinking of them. There are people that used to love ska that fell out of love with ska or for whatever reason, whether they felt like they outgrew it, whether they got into other stuff and then they kind of viewed it as like, Oh, that was my past. And that's, I'm kind of embarrassed by that. That seemed to be the most significant uh, segment of the audience that, like really not only gravitated towards my book, but were impacted by it because those are the people that were like, Oh, you made me realize that this thing I used to love is cool and does deserve to be treated like it's good music, not just like an embarrassing part of my past. So totally. Yeah. And I feel like that even came through a bit, like, you know, with some of the bands on the podcast, like, like, you know, the one that comes to mind first would be like Joyce Manor, which Mm -hmm. like, like, you know, when he when Barry came on your show, like he was so excited to talk about this stuff. Um, but it's not something that like was public facing for Joyce Matter at any point, you know, like it was mm-hmm. like. 
if you another interesting interview was uh, Rory Phillips from uh, Impossibles. He he was pretty he was pretty open about his journey towards the Impossibles being the ska band, the Impossibles shifting away from ska consciously, and him later coming to terms with the fact that that was maybe not a great move, and that he even I think he said some stuff about how like you know, like kind of being embarrassed about it a little bit as, as like perception of ska changed, but then realizing like years later that like the fact that we played ska in this way, in this sort of like in this music where we're like a four piece band, that's really into like punk and Weezer. The fact that we're making that ska was actually what part of what made us an interesting band to begin with. And the fact that we would run away from this piece of us that was in fact interesting was actually like, a bad thing, not a good thing. Like we were conforming rather than like sticking to what was interesting about us. So, I mean, I think if you're, if you're looking at that sort of story, I thought, I think that's one of, one of the more interesting episodes on that topic. Yeah. I, um, I will say they, this too, about the people, um, the ska fanatics who may or may not have like appreciated my book. I feel like we've won some of them over with a podcast because the podcast has, I think, shown that over time that we've gone real in depth with a whole variety of ska, and we've brought on like ska bands from other countries. We've brought on a lot, of, a lot of traditional ska bands. We've dug deeper into the music, I think, than my book did. So I think some of the people that read my book assumed that I was not a fan of traditional ska, or that I was like kind of saying that that music sucked or those people were elitist. What I was talking a little bit about the, the nineties traditional Scott elitism, cause that was a thing, but I, I very much like the music. So I don't know if that fully came across in the book, but I think we've sort of proven with the podcast that like, yeah, we're, we're, we're totally down with traditional ska and global ska and all the ska. And, and, and like we show that, we have knowledge about this stuff too. So and I, I could, I've seen some of those people like on Reddit and like all over who I, I who initially had a, like a, a negative or a mixed reaction to my book. I've like, they listen to the podcast and they're down with it. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean like sky's a really interesting thing because it's like, it's like as loud as the haters are like the ska fanatics can almost be worse. <laughs> like, you mm-hmm. know, like I, I mean, I feel like we've probably both been through this, but like, even just with some of the stuff that I write on Broken Vegan about ska, it's like the ska haters are just very blindly like, this is obviously stupid. It's ska. Like, why would I read this? Uh, but it's the fanatics yeah. whose criticisms are like way harsher, you know, because they're just yeah. like, oh, like, you know, like all you like is this one thing. And like, you know, we literally did that list of 64 ska records from mm-hmm. a period of like 60 years. And they're still like, seems to me like you only like less than Jake. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, but whatever yeah i got this one guy commented on my facebook post somebody i was not friends with and and he just went on and on about this this article is horrible and you should mention real ska bands like um you know and he listed a bunch of like um yeah you know european and and latin american ska bands and i was just like those are awesome bands you know i love all those bands and we did mention those fabulosos um in the list so yeah, I mean this 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 isn't as globally centric as it could have been, but it wasn't missing 
it did have some global elements to it, you know, which you I would not expect at all for a, a U.S. publication talking about ska. And like I've talked about this before, and I, you know I digress, but we'll get back. But like um, for me, because you know you were talking about the different categories of readers of your book, and I feel like I fall somewhere between the people who fell out of love with Scott and like the people who didn't, I guess. Cause like, I didn't like fall out of love, but it became really hard to find, you know, like mm -hmm. um, yeah. in the early two thousands is when I got into Scott um, because of my age. And it was like really everywhere, even then, like, and we've talked about this in other like places, but like, you know, for me growing up, like, like uh, the the early two thousands, like Rancid and Less Than Jake hits were like on MTV, and those were ska songs. Like you know, like Science of Selling Yourself Short and Fall Back Down, and like that was really really visible in two thousand ten when people are like ska's never never died. I'm like, okay, maybe not, but like I did not know where to find ska records, and like they weren't they were like you had to dig really really hard. And if we're being honest, a lot of the stuff that did come up like wasn't that good all the time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it, Scott it, definitely died in popular culture i mean i know that the, the argument about ska died ska never died i think the problem is that that statement's too simple i think what 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 we're trying to say is that it changed its relationship to um, culture changed and its relationship now people are saying you know with the discussion about ska being back i think it's that's also confusing too because what does back mean is back mean it's not in mainstream culture by any means at all um so it's not back in that sense and i don't know if it will but it is more prominent within the underground worlds than it used to be and it, there is more bands making noise outside of the ska bubble than there used to be so i think that's what ska is back means at this moment i mean that could change too it could break into a, a bigger world i I don't see punk ska hitting a major way um, now, but I do see there are potential versions of ska that could hit into mainstream culture now. Um, I think that in the in the Latin world, the Spanish speaking world, it could happen. Um, I mean, Bad Bunny has released a ska song before. It wasn't like a big song, but I mean, it's. Bad Bunny is like one of the biggest artists of the world. And I think that reflects not so much specifically Bad Bunny, but more from the world of Latin music that it's there and it's it's not viewed the same way as it is in, in mainstream pop in the US um, or in the English speaking world. I guess he's technically from the US. Um, then I think you have like, it could, it could, I mean, it could pop up in electronic music. I mean, 100 Gex doing ska i mean they're i'm not quite sure if i would call the mainstream i mean they're on a pretty significant level but i don't know that like your your average i don't know that your average person knows 100 gex but like you know your average young person and person in, interested in music knows 100 gex and a lot of the, a lot of people that know 100 gex doesn't know bad time records bands so Something like that could get bigger in those in those realms, I think. Yeah. And also, I, I would so. say the third category is I can see, um, I could see like a rock steady, like rock steady hip hop e sort of thing happen within like a 
an R&B or hip hop artist. I could see that happening and I could see that taking off in a legitimate like pop realm and but if that happened, I don't know that it would be framed as like or understood about what's happening. Like it would just be like a cool jam probably, you know. And and then we would be like we would be talking about it, but like I don't think pop audiences care what we say. <laughs> well, I think that's even what happens with like Bad Bunny. Like when he put that song out that was recognizably ska, like we know that. And my friends who listen to Bad Bunny like on the radio and at parties or whatever, like they don't hear that song and think this is ska. Like I've been in conversations with friends where I'm like, this is ska or like this is reggae. And they're like, no, it's not. There's no horns, you know? And it's like, I'm like, so like I think the the sort of I sound like a snob, but I think the mainstream understanding of what Sky even is is like a bit, you know, convoluted. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this like really dumb like meme that goes around where it's like Sky is white ma- mar- mariachi music or something like that. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's like, okay, what you're talking about is ska punk, '90s ska punk, which isn't. I mean, there's so many layers of what's wrong with that meme, but I think like the, the, the worst, the most egregious part about it is like its popularity, Scott's popularity within the Spanish speaking world. And the fact that the Spanish speaking world is probably has the highest degree of probability of that music rising to mainstream culture at this point. But not to sound like an unfunny, like <laughs> stick in the mud. It's just, it just really more reflects what people, what people think Scott is like to, to say Scott's white mariachi music. Totally. So you put your book out in defense of Scott. The first edition came out in 2021, right? Yeah. May 4th, 2021, May 4th, 2021. So that came out like, I think, but totally coincidentally, I believe it was unplanned, like around the same time that we did start to see this ska renaissance with bad time records and that kind of stuff. And so I think even when you probably like my guess would be even when you like turned in the official product. You're like, here's in defense of Ska, like we're going to launch pre-orders. Ska was in, a, was in so, it's not still in need of defense, but it was so much more in need of defense then than it is now. A lot's changed since it came out. And now you have a second edition. So two-part question. One is, what would you say has changed in Ska since that book came out? And what sort of made you want to do this second edition? What things did you feel that the book needed to have added to it? Okay. Well, one, the, I want to I'll just go back a little bit. The biggest, the biggest thing that happened that was a completely unplanned and I had no hand in um, with regarding the release of my book was that Jeff Rosenstock dropped a surprise ska album like two or three weeks before my book came out. And that um, he, he sort of like, got people talking about ska not in a serious way you know it was like oh my god ska is cool ska is cool you know that's kind of how indie rock media was treating it uh, but you know it did sort of I, I my book coming out like made it appear as though multiple things in ska were happening at this moment in time so it, i think and then you then you see like bad time bands are kind of are kind of working and they're they're trying and and they're getting a little they're going somewhere. So I think those three factors happening all around the same time we're all into we're all, we're not 
we're independent of each other, even though we know each other. And even though Jeff like wrote the forward of my book, but I think the view is kind of like, oh, maybe Sky is back because look at Jeff Rosenstock, look at this guy wrote a book, look at these these new bands on this label, Bad Time Records, who have been around a while actually, but to me, they seem like they just started. So I think that that's what prompted a lot of like these like, let's talk about Ska Now articles that came out that my book got included in. Um, so that's, you know, that's very lucky. And that's not going to happen when I release the second edition um, in October, 2024. There's not going to be um, these other ma- magical moments that happen and people aren't going to write articles going like, is Ska back? What is, what's, you know, does Ska deserve, you know, to be reevaluated? That's, that's not going to happen. Um, what I am happy, what I am hoping happens is that there's a further discussion about Scott more in the way that I've treated it in the book and in the podcast that, you know, the question, there's questions beyond is Scott back, is Scott not back? Um, I found that that was, you know, very fortunate for me in terms of like being able to have sales and being able to get interviewed in articles that, that framing device. But I also felt like it really wasn't the point of my book at all. And it wasn't really something that I really wanted to discuss all that much, but that's what people really wanted to know about and really wanted to talk about and really wanted to position my book to say, like at this point, having spent all this time writing that book and then all the time adding to the book and then all this time doing the podcast with these, you know, doing interviews with people, like I have like a lot more things I want to, I'm curious about and, and wanting to share about Ska than that. You know, I'm looking at Ska, I'm looking at Ska's place and culture in, in a very large context. Like we're talking, of, we're, we're interviewing people who were in bands, are currently in bands. We're talking to people outside of it and we're kind of showing the pieces of this puzzle. Like, oh yeah, we talked to Fred Armisen, his band in the nineties played with Ska bands. He likes Ska. He's talked about Ska on TV. He's made jokes about it. You know, we're kind of adding that, that piece to this puzzle. So we're showing Ska's place and culture is so much bigger and more interesting than, than we're led to believe through this kind of like very narrow scope of how Ska has been viewed in, in us culture for so long. Um, so in a way it's a similar, it's a similar thing, like defending Ska. I'm, I'm trying to educate Ska, educate people on Ska in an educate in an entertaining way by showing its vastness, it's, it's musical diversity, it's, it's cultural diversity. It's like, pop culture diversity, all the people that it's impacted that you maybe didn't think of. So, um, so in terms of like what I hope this, what I hope the point of this book or how people, um, receive it, I guess I can get into the details of the book, but in terms of how I hope people receive it, I guess like I'm trying to, I'm trying to shift the conversation a little bit more to that. What I'm saying, if people like, you know, listen to the podcast or read the book, it's like, I'm trying to talk, like, can we talk about ska? beyond this like simple discussion about like this is the this is the history of ska you know first second third wave and then it came then it went away and it came back or is it back like can we can we move past that conversation and can we get into the nitty-gritty of all these different bands or all these different people and all the ways it's interacted with culture i mean we do that with so many other styles of music already it's we've gotten past sort of the basics of the genre to go into the deeper part of the genre so that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm, that's what I'm hoping, that's what I'm hoping people will go with it. And some people, 
will maybe already have been part of that or have already are, have enough knowledge of SCA that they might be interested. And some people might need to start at the beginning and then hopefully, you know, they'll listen to some episodes or read the book and they'll be at a deeper place with it. So that's my intention. And I, and I hope in terms of like the release of the book and the publicity of the book, that that's kind of where we can, where we can talk about it. If there is articles written about like, is SCA back or not? I mean, I'm not going to like, <laughs> I'm not going to say like, don't write that, but, and it's going to help people see it, but that's not what I'm hoping will happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, so who are some of the new uh, people interviewed for the new edition? Let's see. So I'll, let me get into, let me get into the why of the second edition and then I could kind of yeah, explain the who and good. specifically what's in it. Um, there's three major th- reasons that I decided to do a second edition. First reason I decided was I released this book on clash in 2021. Uh, it, it did well. Clash was a smaller book company then they had no distribution with stores. It was purely online, word of mouth, and whatever relationships they had individually developed with bookstores. The same month that I released Indefense of Ska, this book called Daryl was released. It's a um, very bizarre novel um, about a person who identifies themselves as a cuck and goes down this like whole journey about what that means and about their identity. It's a really interesting, really good book. That book also did really well. It was released the same month as In Defense of Ska. That got press in like the Atlantic and like within like other like people who like literature and stuff like that. So with uh, with the success of Daryl and In Defense of Ska and some other stuff, Clash were able to get distribution, proper distribution with bookstores. They have a, like they have somebody that they deal with that does rep for bookstores and we were kind of talking about this and then like about like oh you know we can we can go back and and uh talk to these bookstores about you know in defense of ska or all of our old stuff so i i guess at one point it occurred to me that we could make a new edition of the book add some stuff and we could treat it like a new product and go into bookstores and go into this realm fresh um that was one one thing um the second thing I would say is some of the some of the criticisms that I felt like I received for the book, I felt like maybe I don't know if I would say warranted, but I felt like it kind of was like I wouldn't, you know, I would have preferred to explain a little better some some things like about, you know, the importance, the importance of traditional ska and the traditional ska scene is definitely one of those things. It's I I um and I also, you know, I wanted there to be better context to a lot of stuff. Like I felt like there was some context missing, historical context to what was happening in the larger world around ska. Like I don't think I fully explained in the book that I I think, and I could demonstrate with examples that punk rock breaking in mainstream was a critical component for ska breaking in mainstream because it happened a few years earlier it was successful it it made uh A&R representatives aware of punk rock as this commercial thing and it also gave them an opportunity to understand how to market ska 
because they saw it as a sort of offshoot of punk and alternative music. So they could all, they could market it that way. And they primarily like went signed bands that fit that mold, not entirely, but mostly. And, um, for better or worse, I mean, there's definitely problems in that. And that's actually a lot of what we're dealing with is like the fact that it was marketed in the wake of punk rock breaking as like sort of this segment, like a, a subculture of punk. That's like a, that's a thing we're, we're, we're trying to, edu- trying to understand that isn't really the reality of the ska scene. It is only a part of the ska scene. Um, so that, that kind of context really just like really illustrating that in the book, like here is, here's why ska blew up, you know? Uh, and also like really talking about, I didn't talk too much about the years following ska going down in the two thousands in popular culture and kind of what was happening. So some of those are some criticisms I got. I don't know that I would say they are justified per se, because, you know, I put, there's so much in the book that I, my book can't be everything, but I, I also kind of felt like I, I would have, would have mind, I would have preferred to address some of these things a little better. Um, the third thing that happened is that I'm doing this podcast and interviewing people every week and learning more about ska, learning, going in even deeper and deeper and deeper and getting even like interviewing some of the people that were in my book and then kind of piggybacking off of some of the interview that I did for the book and getting like deeper stories than I had gotten for the book and then talking to people that I did not interview and seeing how it related to the stuff that I had in the book. And like, I kind of think of, I kind of think of this, um, Scott history is like this map, right. And you're like coloring in little pieces of the map every time you tell stories and you talk to people and like my book did however much my book did. And then the podcast like is filling in that map every week. And sometimes it's like, you know, we're doing like a whole episode that's like Blue Meanies telling their story. And that's really filling in this piece of very specific piece of history. But other times it's like, yeah, we're, we're interviewing Margaret Cho and she's telling her connection to this. And it's like, you're adding, you're adding this whole other layer to the history of Ska where it's like, she grew up, you know, she grew up going to Fishbone shows. She was friends with Mike Park. They wrote a, they wrote a song about her that was supposed to be on her show. You know, you're kind of like, and the, the map gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that's like, um, I have all this stuff in my head. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I wrote this book. I, it's like, I can, add, I can just, I, I can just add to it from only podcast interviews if I wanted to. And I did use quite a bit of the podcast interviews to fill in some of the gaps. Um, so, but I also did new interviews as well. So I would say those those are the main three things. And, you know, some of that is maybe neurotic on my part. I don't know. I mean, I, I know I have to stop. I can't do it again. That's I'll go crazy if I do it again. But I know I'll at some point in like maybe three, four years, I'll be like, oh, my God, I could add so much more. Pull, pull like a like a Walt Whitman with leaves of grass, you know, like, yeah. where he just edited it until he died. <laughs> I'm not going to do, I, I swear on this podcast, I'm not going to do that. I do have a different ska book in my head that I would like to write. And I think that's where I will put my next round of like, oh my God, I got to tell so much more story. I will not add to In Defense of Ska. I will only be adding to In Defense of Ska through the podcast. I swear, I I, I promise on my, on my life that that's the case. 
<laughs> no, but I mean, um, it makes sense. Like, I mean, it's, it's interesting how when you put like, even just for like articles I've done, you put a piece of writing out into the world and the world receives it like this is the destination, right? Like, but it's yeah. often the beginning because it like, it mm-hmm. so often is like a conversation starter. Um, and then you just wish you could like, I, I'm not going to say which one for my own sake, but I have an article that I put out years ago and it got some criticism and I agree with the criticism. And I'm like, I would love to go back and redo that. It's not a big enough deal. Like I'm going to, you know what I mean? It's not a book like this, like in defense of sky, like is way more important. Uh, but I, I get the feeling of like, I put this out. I heard your criticisms. I actually think there's some validity to them. And I kind of agree and would like to take a second stab at it. So. Yeah. And I think in the case of my book, because of the first reason, the fact that it was um, released on a smaller version of the press that did not have distribution. And now we're releasing it in a, now they're probably, I don't say maybe like mid tier, maybe just below mid tier, like level press and they have distribution. I kind of feel like I can tell myself, okay, this is the book that's going to go to bookstores and that will be more of a representation of the book. Um, we redid the cover. We did read. I love the first cover, but we redid the cover to make it look more professional. We redid the layout to make it a lot more professional. Um, but the, the layout of my first edition is, um, fun, <laughs> but very unprofessional. <laughs> it's like photos are interspersed within there and like text that does not always wrap correctly. And sometimes text cuts off. There's like some copyright errors in the first edition. Um, all of those things were seriously addressed in this edition. The layout is very professional. Uh, the book has been given a couple copy edits. I'm, I'm not saying that there isn't going to, it's, there is going to be flawless copy, but it's definitely not going to have the level of errors that were in the first one. Um, the way we wrap the photos is very cool. I think compared to the first edition. So like, I feel like I can be like, hopefully move on, write other books, you know, 10 years from now I write a book and someone's like, what is this guy written before that? You know, and they find in this, the second edition of Indefensive Ska and that's my, that's my book. You know, the first edition is not my book anymore. And I feel happy with that as happy as you can be, uh, as a writer. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. That's awesome. You think about, I guess as a writer, yeah, articles are one thing. Yes, they live online. People can find them. But books are a little different. They are a little bit more of a record of, you know, something, something that you put a lot of time into. They are a statement of some sort. And of course, you know, they can plague you after you've written them and years later, you know, or they could just be like, that's the thing I wrote. I'm proud of. Yeah, Definitely. Well, I'm really excited. Uh, I think the new art looks really great. The new cover. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Uh, Adam Davis. I want to say Adam Davis came up with the concept of the cover. Adam Davis, my co-host of In Defense of Ska and lead singer of Omnigon and former guitarist of Link 80. He was like, we were, we were going over some different ideas, me and my wife and Adam and clash and, um, weren't really landing on anything that was good. At one point I was like, you know, it would be a cool cover is if we took the, uh, the cover for, you know, the book wild Cheryl Strayed book about, I don't think so. 
she wrote a memoir about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, but a lot of it's about, you know, her mother and her own trauma. And it got made into a movie. Um, the book cover is all white and it has a picture of a worn boot. It says wild. And I was like, I had this idea at one point. I'm like, we'll do wild, but it'll be like a, like a punk worn out trumpet standing, you know, on the book cover. And I thought it was a great idea and we did some drafts of it and it just looks so corny. <laughs> like, like how I pictured my head was cool, but it just, it just didn't work. It was not a good idea. Um, Adam came up. He's like, just, he's like, just do a, just a touring case. That'll look cool. Like you graffiti on there. And, uh, it, it looked good. And it, and we went back and forth on it between Adam and I, and then the, the Matthew who does the, um, a lot of the covers for clash and, and, uh, work through it. So I'm happy with the cover and I think it's more professional. Like it'll look good in bookstores. I think my first cover, while I love the first cover and I think a lot of the people who read it love it cause it's very, very punk and it, it was done at Gilman. I don't know that that might not look as good when you're like going through books in the bookstore that might just look a little bit too DIY. Whereas this one, I think maybe looks a little less that way. It looks a little more like I'm looking at a real book. What is this book? And, uh, and it's got blurbs on there. This time I have blurbs because I got good press. And, uh, so that's, that's cool also. <laughs> um, um, so the, so, the new, sorry. So there's two things that are in the new book. One thing is that I went through all the existing chapters and I, uh, re-edited them and I added in some cases to them. And then I wrote a whole final chapter that's entirely new. So in terms of the, what's in the existing book, like that really varies chapter to chapter based off of what I felt like was missing from it or what I felt like could add a little context. There was, there's, if you go line, if you read, like if, if you're like a super fan, you'll do this. No, if you go line by line of original book and new book and you go through each chapter, you're going to see moments where it's like, I added a sentence and then you'll see parts where it's like, I added an entire section. Um, or you'll see a part where it's like, I, I re-edited this thing. Maybe I didn't really add to it, but I re-edited it. I changed some of the wording a little bit. So it's that, it's that much in detail. And then there's some chapters where it's like, okay, not, not, not a ton has really been changed here. Um, so I'll go, I'll go through a few of the people that I talked to and added to the original book. Um, so I have a chapter called Fat Randy, which is primarily about Voodoo Gold School's song Fat Randy. Um, the purpose of that chapter was to talk about how they, well, actually what, what, what spawned that chapter originally was I interviewed Eddie from Voodoo Gold Skulls and um, I was like, I remember back back in back in the '90s. I remember hearing that they had tried to get Chris Farley in that video, and I thought that was the funniest like anecdote. And I asked, I asked Eddie, "Is like, is this true? Did you really try? Did you really like try to get Chris Farley?" He's like, "He's like, not really. I mean, we did talk about it. We did say it would be funny, but we never like actually actively tried to get him. We just was like, it was just one of those ideas." I was like, "Oh, okay." But he's like, but we, but we did actually shoot this whole other video that ended up getting like scrapped. And I had never, I didn't know about that. And so he told me the whole story about fat Randy, which was about, 
they got the guy who was who was Fat Randy. You know, they grew up with this guy who was kind of a lovable weirdo, let's say. And uh, they uh, they wrote the song about him. It was like intended to be sort of um, like it was it was intended to be done in love. Like here's here's a weirdo we grew up with, and this is the story of his story. You know. And uh, so they want they they talked to him. They said, "You want to be in the video about you?" And he's like, "Yeah, let's do it." They um, they had some money because this was on Epitaph, so they rented this house, and um, they got a bunch of their friends, like like or you know by friends I mean people they went to high school with, you know, a bunch of them, and they got they got a camera crew, and they went and filmed this video, and it got out of hand because. Everyone was drinking and I like, you know, fat Randy, the, the real person was maybe a person that got teased in high school. And those same high school people, maybe after drinking a bit, maybe sort of reverted to treating him that way. And it just, they shut it down. It just, that, that was, that was a story of the initial fat Randy video. And he told me that, and I thought it was really interesting. I never heard it before. So I, I made the, the book be about that, the, the chapter be about that, but Within the same chapter, I was talking about Gilman because I had saw Voodoo play Gilman in 2015, and that's where some of my our conversations began. So there was a little bit of a framing of like Voodoo's playing at Gilman's 2015, you know, and then we're gonna go into their story. And I talked about how Voodoo were banned from Gilman for a while because that's another thing Eddie told me. So that was an opportunity to talk a little bit about how um, Gilman was banning major label bands and stuff, but. Voodoo were on Epitaph, which was not actually a major label band. So that that also further was able to kind of discuss how like in the 90s, yes, you were a sellout if you signed to Warner Brothers, but some people thought you were a sellout if you signed to Epitaph. Some people thought you were a sellout if you signed to Fat Records. Some people didn't. It was a debated topic. And so I discussed that a little bit. So I thought it'd be interesting to go a little deeper into that framing and really discuss at length the Gilman culture. Um so I talked to uh, Jesse Luscious, Jesse Townley, who uh, was uh, like a major figure at Gilman. And, and Dan Ozzy interviewed him for his book. And he actually got a lot of his information in the Green Day chapter, the framing the Gilman scene um, from Jesse. So I talked to Jesse also, and I got a lot of information. And specifically, I we I explained the major label culture of, about Gilman and why they would ban Voodoo Gold Skulls. And we we discussed about were they actually banned for playing at Epitaph, for signing to Epitaph. He told me they were not officially banned, and no band was no band was officially banned for signing to Epitaph or Fat Records or any of those like major indies. He said that some people at Gilman took it upon themselves to not book them and to let them feel like they were banned. And he said, that's probably what happened in the case of voodoo, that they were not banned officially. So go into detail on that. I feel like, and, and, and like I said earlier, I framed it a little bit better too, as explain how ska blew up via like on the back of punk rock. So that's, I, I inserted all of that in the front end of the chapter before going deeper into the story of fat Randy, which is what the chapter's about. That's a that's a really good example of how I expanded on an existing chapter without really fundamentally changing the chapter. Yeah, no, it uh, sounds awesome. It sounds really interesting. I'm super excited to uh, to read it myself. And uh, there's a chapter called "Book Your Own Fucking Life," which is the purpose of the chapter is to talk about punk's relationship to ska 
over time um, and how it's how it started and how it evolved. Uh, I devote a good chunk of that to um, Operation Ivy because I believe that Operation Ivy were by no means the inventor of punk ska, but they had a huge role in um, ska being perceived by and accepted by punks. Like Operation Ivy were a band that was clearly a punk band. They were a punk band. They came from the punk scene. Um, They played ska the way punks would play ska, even though uh, Tim Armstrong is pretty well educated in uh, ska. Um, but the rest of the band, not really at the time. I mean, he was sort of the one that was like, this is how you play ska. These are the ska records. You know, he was definitely driving that. Um, and so I, I, I devote a lot of time to telling their story because I feel like they shifted things. They made ska be part of punk culture in a lot of ways because they're a punk band, right? They're a punk band that plays ska and they're amazing. They're one of the best bands, right? So I, I expanded a lot on that chapter. I interviewed Jesse Michaels again. The first time I interviewed Jesse Michaels for the first edition, I got was only able to do an email interview with him. So, but he decided he said he would do a phone interview with me. So I got to fill in a lot of the gaps with him. I interviewed Radley Hirsch, who was um, the guy who they were going to record the album with originally, but then they backed out of it because they didn't like how it was going. Do you know this story? Uh, no, I don't. Okay, so they um, they famously recorded the the energy with um, God, my brain. I can't remember his name. He's he's a legend. Uh, anyways, they went in the studio and whipped out those recordings on energy when they recorded them, the ones that are famous now. With oh, Kevin Army, that's his name. Kevin Army, famous engineer. Uh, and he was like the only person really recording punk in the East Bay at that time. So he recorded a ton of those bands and he went on to some bigger stuff too. They, when they went into uh, Kevin's studio, they just busted those tracks out. It was like first, second takes. However, they'd been trying to record their record for like a year. So that's one of the reasons why they were able to do that. Radley Hirsch was the sound guy at Gilman. And he was like, I want to record a record with you guys. And they're like, cool. And they're like, some I don't know whose idea it was. I think it might have been Radley. So they're going to record at Gilman. So they're like set up at Gilman recording. It's, Gilman does not have good acoustics. Um, and they overdubbed a bunch at his apartment. Uh, I think it. I've heard some of the recordings. I don't think it sounds that great personally. Um, I think Radley. I don't know that Radley's idea was bad. I just think there was a. Um, there was just like a something about the combination of they just wasn't quite right. And I don't think Operation Ivy would have like became the band that we all think of if that was the record. Um, the one on, on Kevin Army recorded is perfect. It's perfect in every way that it's flawless. And it is why that record has like resonated and stuck around. I mean, Operation Ivy's impact is almost entirely based off of the album not off of them as a existing live band. So it is really important to, to talk about Kevin Harmy's recording. So I, I go into the detail of the failed attempt at their first record in, in this chapter, which I really brushed over in the first edition. Cause it's really interesting. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. And I was really thankful to Radley for going into it with me because 
I mean, he feels like it's a great recording and that's fine. You know, I, I don't like, I'm not arguing with him. I think you can, you can see what his point is and what he was after, but because the, the, the recording of energy that exists is bad in a lot of ways. Like the guitars are really tinny. Um, it's sloppy, but it's like perfect. It is exactly perfect for what that band was about. <laughs> so, I mean, and I think it's like one of like Operation Ivy is one of those bands that people who like punk but hate ska air yeah. quotes they like that record still, and and like I you know it sounds so punk like yeah exactly. And I think I think you get this also from like Catch Twenty Two Keys Be Nights where it's like when it's like in both cases like the music being so raw, um, especially when you compare it to like, you know, one of those like major label less than Jake or real big fish records. Um, whatever people think they don't like about ska kind of gets, takes a backseat to just like how punk the record sounds. Yeah. Cause I think Radley was thinking like, let's make a good recording record. And I think that might've worked if the band had stuck around and they had gotten another, a couple albums in, but I just don't think they were ready to record that way. Um, they were, they were too young. They were too inexperienced. They were too punk. I think at that point, but at some point that approach may have been perfect for them. So I don't know. That's just, and that's then Rancid made it. like really, really nice sounding records later on. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll kind of brush over a few more. Um, I interviewed, uh, so in Book Your Own Fucking Life, I added quite a bit to that chapter. I interviewed Nate Albert from Mighty Mighty Boston's, and I interviewed Danny Lohr from Against All Authority. So I added sections on Mighty Mighty Boston's and Against All Authority in sort of my story of charting the different punk bands, evolution of, of the relationship. Because I feel like those are two examples where I feel like Mighty Mighty Boston's was a band. I, I really actually did not talk a ton about Mighty Mighty Boston's in the first chapter, which is definitely a mistake. I feel like their legacy, above all, their legacy is that they were the biggest, they were the absolute biggest ska or ska punk band in the mainstream. No doubt, Sublime, those bands were related to ska, but they weren't really an overt ska band. They weren't overt ska bands by the time they were in the mainstream, right? No doubt. Tragic kingdom. We can argue. We can argue about whether there's actually any ska on there at all, or if it's ska tinged or if it's got a bit of reggae, but it's not a ska record. Um, they came from ska. They used to play ska. Tragic kingdom's huge record. And it was got called ska, but I think, I don't think anyone can argue that it's, it's not a, it's not a ska record. The best you could say is it's, it's ska tinged, right? Yeah, it has like elements of ska, yeah. but it's not like primary genre ska. Yeah. Sublime, same thing. Like they played, Sublime always played everything. They played punk rock, metal, reggae, ska. Their big record has some ska in there. One of the songs, um, Wrong Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty big song. And that was a ska song. Uh, Date Rape. That's like that song is um, important as as much as it is, is a terrible song. That is an important song, and that is the first like song to really get heavy radio rotation in terms of like '90s ska. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, not a, not a ska band. Sublime, 
they were they were related. They were part of the scene for sure. Um, but they were, you know, a lot of their stuff that got really popular was more like reggae hip hop oriented. Mighty Money Boss Tones, on the other hand, straight up ska punk. You know, it's ska, it's punk, it's metal, but it's very centered around the ska elements. And let's uh, let's face it, was a massive record. The impression that I get, straight up ska punk song, was the biggest ska oriented song in the '90s, hands down. So their legacy is that, and their legacy also, I feel like, is they're a great example of how this is a band that held on to the principles of ska and advertised them while they were at their biggest in 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 mainstream culture. They the song, let's face it, is an anti-racist song. In fact, it was it was written to be almost like too obvious because they wanted everyone to understand where they stood. So they 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 didn't want that song to be they didn't write it in a poetic way. They wanted to be like this is we're anti-racist. It's like almost like too too obvious, you know. But that was done intentionally. And uh, they were taking anti-racist action on tour with them to set up booth and they try to educate kids. So they were, I think like when we talk about Ska's place in mainstream culture in like 97, 98 or 96, there's a temptation to be like, yeah, you know, like some of these bands. Okay. Yeah. Like real big fish. They didn't really talk about politics and all these bands, they were really lean on politics and they're a lot of white kids from orange County. Okay, there, that, there's some validity to that, but the biggest of them all was Mighty Mighty Boston's, who were a multicultural band and who did talk about politics and anti-racism. So I just feel like like that gets that gets brushed aside a bit, and I feel like that, that's a I included in the chapter to show how like as much as like mainstreaming of ska like might have like soften some of the elements of the culture. Mighty Mighty Boston's really didn't do that. They really did focus on the culture as they were becoming a, a major band. And I, I just think it deserves to be brought up. Um, so anyways, and against authority I included because I thought they were a great example of a band at that time period that was like um, very, very punk, very political, but not mainstream. And that, but they were doing real well, and to show that these were like sort of parallel scenes that existed at the same time. I think that I, I can't really think of a better band to illustrate that, like late '90s punk-oriented ska, political people in the scene love. They're doing real well. Like against all thirty, I think is the best, best example of that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it is like you know. I think as with most underground styles of music that get popular, like it's usually like a really small specific version that gets represented in the mainstream. And then from there, like stereotypes emerge. And then if you're not really paying attention, then you just sort of like focus more on the stereotype than like the multi layers that's that are actually existing. Yeah. With the mighty, mighty Boston's too, I think the, the impression that I get it being a song that's sort of, hard to understand what their point is. I mean, there is a point to that song, but I think it's a lot of people like, what is this song about? Like, it's weird. And then there are these dudes that are in plaid and the video is kind of funny. Um, goofballs, right? That That's like the, that's the opinion that some people have that they were only aware of that song playing on MTV in, in major rotation at that time period. 
um, totally not fair uh, impression of that band. Pun intended. From that time period. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's interesting too, because like just uh, as a semi-related digression, like um, I, I remember like, I posted a Facebook status in 2015 and it was one second. I think I have a cat coming in the room. Um, uh, <laughs> just figured I'd announce that <laughs> um, instead of just hearing the door creak. But um, anyway, uh, in 2015, I made a Facebook status and it was like, I don't really understand why people hate ska. And I got like all these responses and everyone felt like really easy to fire back against. Like nobody mm-hmm. has like, like, n- like nobody's got like a really solid ground to stand on of like, here's why it's like a horrible style of music. Um, everything somebody says is like easily contradicted by just like a million other bands or something. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of like, I don't know kind of what you were saying about like, you know, like the plaid shirts in the video. It's like, okay, so like you watched one video for one song, which I think is a really good song. Um, and mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's a band with like 13 albums, you know, <laughs> like there's so much yeah. there. Yeah. Like, and what, what band of their stat stature in 1997 was bringing anti-racist action on tour with them? Like, right. On, that was on MTV, an alternative no, none of, I mean, I wouldn't say none of them, but there was a small group of bands that were, that were talking about that stuff and trying to educate kids on that kind of stuff. So it just feels like, I don't know that, that they, they don't deserve that kind of like dismissal. Yeah. And like a lot yeah. of non-ska bands that were very popular in the nineties actively doing like really like offensive stuff that was like yeah. really popular you know, like, I mean, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's there is. Did you ever read um, David Anthony wrote this blog post about why he thinks Sky is considered corny? Did you ever read this? Is this about how um, like the sort of the the how there was like post punk and, and how yes, post punk? Yeah. 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 I think there's validity to that. You know, like, yeah, it's cause, like. Because he talks a lot. Of, he talked a lot about how like the. um the allowances that post punk bands have been given, like to the point where a lot of these bands even were back in the day, like playing with Nazi imagery and how we kind of like go, oh, you know, they're artists, whatever, you know, and it, they just, whereas like the two tone bands were like actively going, like kicking Nazis out of their shows and that, and it's, and, and how that's not even like viewed as this amazing piece of history or amazing stance that they took. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's like, I think that's one of those articles that just like lives in my head. And like, I think in a way things like that exist now, you know, like, I mean, there are still like, just for example, there are like still bands in the black metal community that like flirt with fascist and Nazi imagery. And it's like, I'm like, you have the whole like bad time record, Scott punk international crew, like actively fighting. So for so many good causes, but they're just like, oh, that's not cool. You know, and it's like, it is weird how mm-hmm. it's like, like you, there are like scenes and styles of music that will like overtly like flirt with fascism. And then it's like, but there's a cool element. And then there will be like a ska scene that is so verbally against, vocally against it. And it's just like, oh, those are like idiots jumping around, like 
dressing funny and playing horns. Nah, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. And then I, I wrote, if I want to talk about this, I wrote a, um, a, a final chapter, I guess you could say it's a pretty long chapter. Uh, it's kind of a collection of chapters cause I was working on a bunch of extra chapters, but I ended up sort of combining it into one thematically collect connected chapter with different sections. I called it the lost years and it's uh, basically, it's basically about the sort of uh, period of time between the uh, early two thousands to the present. And I, I think some of it was like uh, trying to answer my own question about like, did Scott go away? Is Scott coming back? Like what was, what's the reality? Because I think like those conversations are always so uh, short and so superficial. And so I just dove kind of deep into that. And I just inspected a lot of these different stories and stuff. Um, I talked at length with um, the guys from bad operation because they have a whole interesting story of um, that starts in the early two thousands with uh fatter than Albert and, uh, the band that D Ray was in initially before he joined Fatter and Albert called Samurai Deli. And uh, the drummer was in a band called Angry Banana. They were part of a scene in New Orleans. And then they were um, Hurricane Katrina happened. And even though the scene was already kind of vibrant at that point, it kind of increased, like their scene kind of got better because they. I think some of it was like they were working with venues in town and there wasn't a lot that parents were comfortable letting their kids go to. And it was a really positive scene and it was kind of a, a cathartic scene for all these kids that dealt with whatever Katrina meant to them and and however it impacted them. And you actually saw this community records kind of grow from this vibrant ska scene that was really a, a place for, for kids to work out some of this, these issues with Katrina um, and, and just the general like city and, you know, the punk rock elements of new Orleans and stuff. So it's a pretty fascinating story and it happens in the mid late two thousands, which is like a complete supposed dead period of ska, right? Like, yeah. To the point where I think the best example of like how, big that scene was at its time. Um, if you ever watched that show Treme, which was a, uh, the guy who made the wire, mm-hmm. right? This was a show he made after the wire. It's not, it was not nearly as popular as the wire. It's a really, really good show in my opinion. Um, and he really like focuses a lot on the music culture of new Orleans. A lot of it's like sort of a backdrop and he tries to dig in, not just like new Orleans is jazz. Like he has the, Cajun music. He has a lot of the, like the weird indie music that's happening. So, and he shows all of that. And, um, there's a scene where, uh, the daughter of, um, John Goodman and, and the other, his wife, the kind of like main characters, she's high school. She goes to some party and, um, fatter than Albert, like song is playing at the party. And uh, the reason that there's a Fatter and Albert song playing is because the producers did like a ton of research for every scene to be like, what's an appropriate song? What's an appropriate music for the scene? And they did research and they said, someone told them like, this is what's popular right now with, or in this time period that you're in with high school kids. 
is this local ska scene and these local bands. And then they reached out to Fatter and Albert. They licensed the song. They put it in the backdrop. Like, I don't know what other scene in like 2007, 2008 that would have applied to if there was a television show made about its city, but it applied to, it applied to that scene, that city, Fatter than Albert. So, so anyways, I go into pretty great detail about that whole story and, and leading up to, to community records and also sort of how they pulled away from ska, then got back into is ska with bad, uh, bad operation. Cause I think part of what makes bad operation such a good band is that all of their history went into bad operation. It was like their love for ska as kids and, and just getting into this music, getting into all this other type of music, uh, learning how to record because when you're an indie rock band, you have to know how to record good. Uh, When you're a ska band, maybe it's not as important because you're trying to play shows. And so then kind of coming back to ska as adults and like wanting to like make, same quality levels, same quality of songwriting and same quality of recording, but for ska and, and also treating the, the music with reverence because you're adults and you see its value. Like, I think there's so much about the bad operation first record. That's like really encases all of those things you listen to. It's a good record, but it's like, it's meaningful. I think. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that was like, that was sort of how uh, Mike Sosinski like sort of pitched that record to me. Like we, um, we had like that interview for that article I wrote on like skies thriving. Here's the DIY scene that's keeping it alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, said to Mike at some point in the interview, I guess, like I, I, I kind of what I said to you where I was like, you know, like I liked Sky as a kid and then just like, didn't see it really anymore. And then started to see it again and was like excited by that. And he was like, you know, bad operation, sort of like went through a similar thing as like you were describing, but like, as like, you know, like musicians, like, like, like it was like, they sort of like checked out and came back with new perspective and wrote this record. And he was like, I think you'll find that the record taps into maybe some of the feelings you personally had. And it like absolutely did, you know, like, and, and I, I do, I think I, what you're saying is it's so true. Like it, it sort of, that record by itself sort of like encapsulates kind of what happened with the, you know, quote, ska renaissance of the early 2010s in a way. Yeah. So that's a big part of the, uh, the lost years. I also talk about, I talk about LA's tra- trad ska scene, which is really, I think a pretty important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like in the two thousands and beyond, because you had, uh, Chris Murray, uh, gets a blue beat lounge going in the early two thousands for a number of years. And that's a pretty thriving scene. And, it, it comes off the back of LA having a good, strong traditional ska scene in the 90s that sticks around past the uh, boom of ska punk. And uh, it, it's still active today in a, in a way that's unique, I think, than the rest of the country because you have all these bands, you have the scene of like skinheads and mods who really like care about the music, and you have... Um, like ska mania are produce are uh, show producers that are putting on all of these shows where they're bringing in Jamaican legends and they're backing them with like local ska musicians. Like a lot of now they're using steady 45s quite a bit who are a, a really, really good band, really good traditional ska band from LA. Um, but you know, there's been different bands over the years who, and you know, 
some, you know, someone would come in, Stranger Cole, you know, whoever would come into town, they'd fly them in and then they'd be backed by these musicians. And these musicians are nailing the music. Like they're phenomenal musicians. So they, LA's traditional ska scene has been a really interesting thing that's continued past the, uh, past the nineties. Um, uh, let's see. I talk, I actually go into Christian ska a bit. Cause I think, um, it's sort of interesting, but I think the story of Five Iron Frenzy is of particular the most interesting thing to happen because their return in 2013 was real big, like crazy big. Like, I don't know if people realize that they broke a Kickstarter record in, two th- in I think, 2013 or whenever they funded mm-hmm. their reunion record. Like, their fans were like passionate about them recording again. And they also like, by the time they got to that record and they got to their, the, the, the record that came out more recently, who the band had been before and who they became as adults became pretty clear. Like this is a band from the Christian world who are politically liberal or, you know, politically leftist. And by in more recent years, that's more of an issue than it was even in the 90s. It was a little bit of an issue. Like they had some problems with some of the stuff that they put out. And they also, sidebar, they've also like put out some stuff that they've regretted. You know, like I think Reese has like made, has written lyrics about homosexuality that he has since regretted and has like apologized about and it's clarified, you know, he's had his own evolution as a person, you know, he's very, the band is very much pro LGBTQ at this point, mm-hmm. just to be clear. So I'm mean, the band's not perfect. However, the band has always supported like leftist ideas. You know, their first song on their first record was like bringing awareness to uh, like, colonization of native american land in the u.s right it's pretty weird kind of a content for a christian band or of any genre to sing about that were involved within the christian industry but anyways like you know in the last decade though the band has been has stood more and more for fighting against the direction that christianity political christianity has gone and trumpism so i kind of wanted to talk about that because i felt like it was pretty important part of particularly with their return you know in the, in the 2010s like this band is, was so meaningful to people that they they were showered with an incredible Kickstarter campaign as evidence. You know, like we, you know, we, it's not like ska fans necessarily. I mean, some of them, yes, this is just fans, kid, kids who grew up in the Christian scene who saw Fiverr and Frenzy as like the only ones with this message from their scene. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, there's that. Uh, Talked a little bit about Big D and Big D's role in the 2010s. So I feel like they're a good example of a band that kind of flirted with mainstream-ish stuff without really quite being mainstream in a time period where it wasn't really allowed. Um, yeah. I, I interviewed uh, Patrick Stump for the uh, book. Nice. Um, he went into a lot more detail about his story. I think the part of the reason I wanted to talk to him he sets up the chapter is I wanted to talk about how one of the things I've learned through doing my podcast is that people are more comfortable talking about their Scott past than they were five years ago. Mm-hmm. Like now, I mean, we're seeing people talk with us and, and maybe 
go onto Twitter or whatever. And they're being like, I'm a, I was a Scott kid. Uh, you didn't really see that like five, 10 years ago. So people are making peace with their Scott pass, I think. And I'm not saying that we're responsible for it. I'm just reflecting that I see it happening. And I think it's an important way to kind of view, you know, this, this time period. No, definitely. I agree. Um, I hope that we can get to the point a little bit what you were saying about like, I don't want the book's message to be like, is Scott back? I also mm-hmm. hope we can kind of just get to the point where we can just talk about Scott like without having to talk about why it's not lame, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think like, <laughs> there. Yeah, it's in defense of Ska, the book and the podcast, but I don't want to sit around defending Ska. Like every time we get a guest on, like, okay, let's defend Ska. Now it's like, let's move. And we do, we don't really defend Ska in in an overt way. It's just, it's more just, it's more reflective of like its place. And, and just hopefully that talking to anybody and getting like having serious conversations about the music and getting these stories is is its own defense is how I kind of view it. Yeah. No, and I mean, again, like, I agree. And, like, the name is just great. But, like, um, I agree that, you know, at this point, like, I mean, I'm not, just to be clear, I'm not talking about you even. Like, what, you know, I just think for people in general, you know, like, even, I'll talk even myself, you know, it's like, um, I don't know, like, just one example is, like, you know, we're talking about that Operation Ivy record and how, like, people who maybe like punk but not ska like that record. And, like, um mm-hmm. You know, the Omnigon record from last year, which is probably my favorite Ska record of last year. And I'm not just saying that because In Defense of Ska mm-hmm. is on the BB podcast so wait, right now. Are we saying probably or are we saying absolutely? Um, or, I'll say absolutely. Yeah, sure. That's all right. My there favorite. you go. Yeah. That's best my Ska favorite. Record, uh, that's Ska my record favorite Ska of record of 2023. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean that. Yeah. Um, okay. And, uh, you know. I think it's also though, and I wrote this in my like year end list review of it, but like it's also just a great punk record. And Mm -hmm. to me, so I do have some level of like, if you like punk, I don't know, I guess you are just, you think upstrokes and and some, and some horn lines are so atrocious that you can't put the record on. Like to me, that's ridiculous. Um, And I, and I want to, in a little bit of a way, frame it like, Hey, punk people, like, this is also for you. And like, and there's all these caveats I have to, but at the same time, I don't want to do that because I want to just be like, it's good music. And why can't we just talk about it? Like it's good music and like skip mm-hmm. all the yeah. like, but this and that, you know what I mean? Like, and it would be nice to get, and, and you know, part of it is like, uh, it's like you internalize what, you know, like we put that list out, the best Scott albums of the year or not the best. Cause I didn't call it the best but 10 great Scott albums and sorry for seal. I'm just going to get this out go there ahead. and then we'll go back. But like BV did a bunch of different genre year end lists. We did punk rap, metal, indie, hardcore, folk, country, screamo, metalcore, jazz, and ska. And only the ska list had like 25 Instagram comments being like, I thought this was a hard times headline. Oh, the joke is there is no good. Like, it's just like, yeah. So it's just like the the premise of here's 10 good albums in this genre. People are like impossible. So you internalize that even before you put the article out there, you know, and you and you get defensive. But I would like as a culture to get to the point where I'm just like, here's 10 good Sky records and music fans are just like, well, I'll check them out. And that's it. You know, like Mm -hmm. you don't even have to like them, but it's just 
the 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 concept of even talking about like here are new records in this genre and we think they're good that should not be absurd i agree i it was, what's strange to me and I, is like when you look at like emo i think emo kind of goes in and out of this and i know you know more about emo than me but i feel like emo goes in and out of this but when it goes back in i feel like the entire music journalism community is like yeah yeah emo's I, i'm down with emo and then they'll just start writing articles about emo and start telling history of emo and start ranking emo records. It's like, mm. like, but like, you know, two years earlier, it's like emo sucks. Emo's the worst. Um, so I don't know why Scott doesn't get that too. It's like, well, why, why don't they all like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I, I like Scott too. Or I like, I'm down with X, Y, Z records. Um, so my theory would be that like, I think emo ha- uh, has continued like a bit more with younger generations where like you just, you can get a younger person who's just like, yeah, I let, I like that music. I like emo and like not have like, but like, I don't, I, I wish this would change and I hope it does. I don't know that there are like an enough 20 somethings who are just like, Oh, I love like, you know, a bunch of new Scott bands. And I think like a lot of the people who were like, wait, Scott is good. I think a lot of them were people who experienced third wave Scott, like US Scott, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think we need that new generation who just like grows up liking Scott for it to like get to that point. That's my theory. And I'm not good at telling the future. So I could be way off. Yeah. I think another problem with Scott um, is that I think. Uh, it's it's hard music to make in the sense that it's like to make a good ska record you have to be good at your instrument for the most part you have to like let's say if you have horns you got to have like people who know how to play the horn and can stay in tune and have a full section and you're dealing with more counter melodies and stuff like that so the bar to to get in that to get in there and to create good stuff is, is higher. I think than being like a punk band or an emo band, like you can just be 15, not really know how to play your instrument very well, be filled with these emotions and these kind of ideas and just sort of burst out with these cool songs. And maybe, you know, maybe you go downhill after 19 and you don't know how to recreate the magic, but that happens. But you might be able to do the songwriting part with ska, but you have to actually play good or it just sounds bad. Yeah. And you need enough room in your car for like eight members. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But no, but seriously, you need to know how to navigate like the different, like if you're going to use horns, like how do you use horns in a way that's like, you have the bass doing one thing, you have the singer doing one thing, you have the horns doing something. And and you're supposed to be dealing with space as well. It's it's a little bit more complicated. And that's why Scott like always impressed me. That's why I would always be confused. I'm like, wait, why? Like you like punk, which I love punk. So this is not a diss, but you love punk, which is like very simple. And then you take punk and I'm talking about Scott punk here, obviously. But then you take punk and you add like different rhythms and horn arrangements and all this cool stuff and bass lines that provide this like counterpoint to the guitar lines instead of just like following them directly and all this like really interesting musical stuff. And you're just like, Oh, now it's corny. You know, I'm like, shouldn't that like, but that to me is so interesting. You know, that's like just so such a musically interesting way to like approach music. That sounds not articulate at all, but 
Uh, anyway, so I never got, I never got the sky hate. It just never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, on that note, I feel like this has been a really awesome conversation. Is there anything else that you want to plug before we say goodbye? I mean, I'll just, I'll just reiterate, um, by the time this drops, my second edition of my book will be available to be, to pre-order. I think probably going to clashbooks.com is probably the best way to order it. Um, it's comes out on October 29th, 2024, uh, podcast by the time this drops, I'll be, we'll be in our fourth season on consequence. So check it out wherever you get podcasts. And where, where can people follow you, you know, social media, what's the best way? Um, so at in defense of ska is a, is the handle on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, um, threads, technically, blue sky technically <laughs> yeah, you, you mean x right <laughs> the only people that say x are um elon uh fanatics or like journalists that are trying so hard to sound professional <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly all right well thanks so much aaron thanks for coming on the show all right thank you Hey, thanks so much to Aaron. Thanks for listening. For much more Ska, you can go pick up the new edition of the Indefensive Ska book at ClashBooks.com. And you can listen to the Indefensive Ska podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love Ska, those are both two really, really awesome things. And I genuinely can't recommend both of them enough. And if you like this podcast, you know, please tell your friends about us. Give us a like, subscribe, rate it positively. All those little things really, really help. And we really, really appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.